I forgot to mention that you can get our uh, notes on version. Would you put that up there? I realized last week I didn't say that cl- uh, clearly, and so some folks didn't understand what I was saying. If you go to uversion.com, if you have a smartphone, you can download the version app, which has uh, all kinds of Bibles. It's got daily reading plans, things like that. And then each week when you come to our worship service, if you go to that app and you, you push on the tab that says live... And then it's going to say, where do you want to search? You put in our, uh, you put in 75801, 75802, 803, it doesn't matter, one of those, and it'll pop up, New Life's uh, notes will be on there. Cool thing about it is you can fill in the blanks there, it has all the scriptures, you can actually jump from the, the individual scripture to the, the context of the scripture, you can take the notes, you can email it to yourself, you can share it with somebody else if you think that that's relevant. What we're going to do now is on Sunday mornings, it becomes live at 10 a.m., and so you can go ahead and log on and you can get that, and then it will stay live through Saturday uh, at midnight. That way, if you hear the service later and you want to, we've had some people say we want to be able to listen and and fill the stuff in. So it'll be uh, live that whole week. If you have to miss it, you get a CD or if you listen online, any of those things. The other thing is if you don't have 3G or you don't get signal in here, I didn't use to until I changed carriers, but we won't go into that. Um, There is Wi-Fi. You can go through Wi-Fi back there. And uh, if we crash it because we have so many people going through Wi-Fi, that's awesome. All right, um, 1980. How many of you were alive in 1980? Let me just see that. Oh, more than I realized. All right. Don't tell me how old you were at that point. I was a sophomore in high school. And back then, there was a magazine, actually a magazine published called Marriage and Divorce Magazine. And I didn't know this until uh, the late 90s, but uh, in this magazine, they, they published a survey that was done, Harvard University did a national survey trying to figure out what um, factors contributed to whether someone got a divorce or not. And here's what they discovered. They discovered that in America, the divorce rate at that time was one out of every three. Now it's just below 50%, but at that time, one out of every three marriages end in divorce. When the couple is married in a church ceremony, it drops to one out of 50 end in divorce. That's a pretty good difference. When a couple is married in a church ceremony, attend church regularly, they pray together, and they read the Bible together. Let me say that again, because you need to get this. When they're married in a church ceremony, they attend church regularly. That means more than once every eight years, or, you know, more than, more, I would say more than 50% of the Sundays. If you've got four Sundays, you need to be there more than two if you're going to call this regular. So, married in a church ceremony, attend church regularly, they pray together, and they read the Bible together regularly. Are you ready for this? The divorce rate drops to one out of 1,105. I don't know about you, but that's the kind of marriage that I want. I don't want to be a statistic. And, And according to all of this stuff that's been compiled, it seems to me... That that's the difference God makes if, he, if you go from one out of two in, in, in divorce to one out of 1,105 in divorce. It seems to me it would be stupid not to have God in your marriage. Right? Does that make sense? Okay. So let me, uh, let me illustrate it this way. In any marriage, it takes three. So we got this. By the way, this is called a drum throne. And I just, I think the only reason, I think drummers named it. Because they think they're more important than everybody. They're, they're kings of the universe. And, you know, so they sit on a throne every week. Um, not the porcelain one, this one. Um, but okay. Here's, here's, what, here's what God teaches us. God says he wants every marriage to be a marriage of three. Not two, three. One is the husband, one is the wife, and one is God. Here's what happens. Most of the time, people get married and they, they are not following God. 
One or both of them is not following God. And so you can see this would get kind of comical. And this kind of looks like a survivor, you know, one of those immunity challenges to me. Because after a while, you're going to get tired. You're going to get, you're going to lose your balance. You're going to get tired. You're going to lose your concentration. And it's going to tump over, right? Assume that that third leg isn't there. Well, here's what happens in marriages. A lot of times, one of the, of the individuals, usually the lady, is more spiritual than the guy. Which is not what God, what God says. God says that the man is the spiritual leader in the home. But ladies too often settle. And then they become the spiritual leaders. And so then it's like perch, perching on just one leg. That gets tiring, doesn't it, ladies? If you have to carry the burden for your family spiritually, you get worn out, don't you? You get a little angry towards your husband sometimes. Whether you mean to or not, because you're doing his job. It's no fun, is it? So you exert an enormous amount of energy trying to balance on two or trying to balance on one when God says, if you'll do it my way, I'll give you stability. I'll make your marriage last. Does this make sense? So God says, I want to be involved. Husband, wife, God, a marriage of three. One secular magazine said that over half... <clears throat> this blows my mind. Over half of all non-Christian men will be involved in an affair at least once during their lifetime of their marriage. Sounds like an epidemic. Just under half of all non-Christian women. Over half of men, non-Christian, over half, uh, just under half of non-Christian women will be involved in an affair. So that sounds like an epidemic. And so what I think, as a pastor, I want to figure out what we need to do so that we don't fall into those categories. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to figure out how we cannot be a statistic. Instead of having the the so-so marriage, we're going to aim for a great marriage. That's what God desires. So we're going to look at God's word. And in James, James is the half-brother of Jesus, in chapter 1, verse 14, the process of immorality is explained. Here's what it says. Temptation is the pull of a person's own evil thoughts and wishes. These evil thoughts lead to evil actions. Now, I think this is on your listening guide. Uh, I want you to circle thoughts and actions. I want you to draw a line to them. Because what you think about determines what you do. People don't just fall into immorality, especially committed Christians. They're not moral one day and then the next day immoral. There's a process that happens. There's things that happen. And, and there's actually a four-stage process that leads to affairs. And by the way, affair is just a sanitized term. Affair makes it sound not so bad. What the Bible calls it is adultery. What the Bible calls it is sin. But affair doesn't sound so bad, and so that's what we use. So here are the stages of an affair. Stage one is smoke, accepting sinful thoughts in your mind. The battle always starts in your mind. Satan plants a little seed, a little thought, and you say, well, you know, I'm just daydreaming. I would never do that. If you dwell on it long enough, you will. This is just the reality of life. You've got to learn to control your mind. As a Christian, you're still going to have sexual thoughts. This is what I think a lot of people don't realize. You still have sexual thoughts even when you're a Christian. It's what you do with those thoughts that determines whether you sin or not. You've got two choices when you have a sexual thought. Either you feed that thought and you become dominated by it and there's going to be a time when you step across the line and you're going to pursue that thought or you refocus on something else. Jesus is the voice of truth. And if you have... You remember what Jesus did when he was tempted? 
He quoted scripture. So he had his mind filled with scripture. And so he refocused from the temptation onto what God says. So if you refocus that energy, when you're daydreaming about somebody that you're not married to, you're putting energy into a relationship that's not godly, not biblical. And so what the Bible says, what God says is refocus all that energy into your mate. If you put half the time into your mate that you put into daydreaming about someone else, you would have a fabulous marriage because you're going to rekindle the fires of romance and passion and all those things. And see, you don't just resist it. This is something else that that we've been taught. You don't just resist it because resist whatever you resist persists. You try not to think about something, try not to think about something, try not to think about something. What do you do? You think about it. So instead of trying not to think about it, you refocus on something else. You replace it. Does that make sense? All right. Now, fortunately, this is the easiest place to stop an affair is at stage one. But we're not taking it seriously because it's only in our mind. It's no big deal. And so if we don't think it's a big deal, we'll progress to stage two, which is spark. Non-physical emotional involvement. Adultery begins in the head long before it ends up in the bed. Long before you go to a motel and you meet someone to whom you are not married, you have set in motion a process of steps. You're setting yourself up to fail because of the way you think. Just to assume that a man and a woman, because they've never touched one another, that that sparks aren't flying, is really naive. Because every time a man and a woman are in the same room, there is sexual energy going on to some degree. It's overt, it's covert, whatever. God made men to be men and women to be women. There starts to be this emotional attachment. And if a man or woman to whom you are not married starts fishing for compliments or if they start to flatter you, red flags should be flying up there and you need to put a stop to it. And let me tell you the quickest way to pour water on someone else's advances towards you. Talk about your spouse. I mean, this, this hasn't happened to me very often, but, but I have in the past had someone that I felt, ooh, this is uncomfortable, and I started talking about how beautiful my wife is. I said, man, her eyes are awesome. Do you really want to douse the flames? You talk about what a good kisser they are. We were, at a, we were at a marriage retreat years ago, and you had to go around the room. You had to introduce your spouse and say something nice about them. And so everybody's going around, they're my best friend, they're my soulmate, you know, all this stuff. And I just got, I got to thinking, and I went, okay. So I stood up, and I said, this is my wife, Janie, and she's a great kisser. And she goes, <laughs> and uh, she couldn't even talk. She was so embarrassed. I'm like, baby, I'm just being honest. I've, I've loved kissing you from the time we've started dating till now. You're a great kisser. But you see, if you focus your attention on your spouse, the other person's going to get the, the message real quickly. Talk about how handsome your husband is, how he, you love his strong arms being around you. I mean, you just you, you start focusing on your spouse, and, and they're going to quit making advancements. Now, with unbelievers, there's very little time spent at this stage. People who don't follow Christ, who are not committed to Christ, there's very little time at this stage. They move on to stage three. But there's a lot of game playing that goes on with Christians in churches at this stage because we say, well, I didn't touch them. I haven't crossed the line yet, but you've crossed the line emotionally. You've committed emotional adultery. And where your heart goes, your body is going to follow very quickly. And so we play these games. Oh, I haven't done anything wrong. Yes, you have. Flirting with someone that's not your spouse is unbiblical. It's against what God says. Do not do it. You are playing with fire. Which leads us to step three, which is physical involvement. Step two, it's emotional line that you cross. Step three, you cross the physical line. Touching, kissing, hugging, intercourse. 
You cross this threshold, and at this point, there is no chance that you're going to get out of this deal without hurting somebody. You've crossed the line. And usually it takes supernatural intervention to bring you back from this point. Stage four is excuses. You rationalize the affair. You hear stuff like, I'm only human. But that's an excuse because can you imagine if we arrest somebody who who robs a bank and kills someone? And he goes, hey man, I'm only human. What are you going to think? You punk. It's no different if you commit adultery. You have stepped across that line and you you have robbed something. You have taken something from someone else that does not belong to you. Some excuses that I've heard. Well, God made me this way. So the fact that you can't keep your clothes on is God's fault. Is that what you're saying? It's God's fault that I have these urges. That doesn't fly. I've heard someone say, well, if my husband or wife would only meet my sexual needs, I wouldn't have to go somewhere else. Okay, okay. So your sexual perversion is your spouse's fault. Let's just be real clear. Or I've heard, well, this other person, the one who you're not married to, they need me. Okay, so your perversion is their fault. It's either God's fault, your spouse's fault, or this other person's fault, but it can't possibly be your fault, right? Is that what you're saying? Seems to be what people are saying. And people say, oh, it won't happen again. And and they think that they can coexist with this person that they've had sex with, but it doesn't work like that. And then people will say, well, God will forgive us. Let me be real clear about something. The Bible says that God forgives people whose hearts are broken and repentant. Let me explain to you what repentance really means. Repentance says, I change my mind about an action, which then causes me to change my action and change my direction, and I move away from it. So if you're still in the midst of adultery, and you're saying, oh God, please forgive me, please forgive me, and you intend to go back, you are not going to be forgiven until you forsake that, till you turn away from it and move away. God says, I will forgive people whose hearts are right with me. He, he doesn't, he's not required to forgive you if your attitude isn't right. So, okay, those are the stages. What do you do if you've gone too far? How do you come back? Very quickly. Number one, admit the sin. It is sin. Don't call it an affair. That's, that's a sanitized thing. Don't call it an indiscretion. Don't call it a momentary lapse in judgment. It is sin. It is adultery. If you do, if you have sex before you get married, that's actually called fornication. We can talk about that later. But it's not a pretty word. You admit the sin. And, and you need to go and read. If you have committed this sin, or if you have a friend who has, they need to read Psalm 51. Because that's the Psalm of David after he had committed sin with Bathsheba, after he had committed adultery with her, and he was confronted and he finally admitted his sin. Psalm 51 is his whole prayer to God about how to get right. And let me just read a few verses. Verses 1 through 4. O loving and kind God, have mercy. Take away the awful stain of my transgressions. Cleanse me from this guilt, for I admit my shameful deed. It haunts me day and night. It is against you that I have sinned. Stop rationalizing. Stop making excuses. Stop blaming someone else. Grow up and accept responsibility for your own actions. And you confess and ask for forgiveness. Second is you end it now. 
If you're in an affair, you have a friend who's having an affair and wants to get out, they've got to stop immediately. In, in immorality, what happens is you become calloused and you move very slowly away from God. If this is God, you move away from Him slowly, slowly, one decision at a time, things happen. But when you, get, when you decide to get out of immorality, when you try, decide to get out of sin, you need to move back in very quickly. Which leads me to step three, is you break all contact. You end it now. Did I skip that one? End it now is number two, and then you break all contact. Never speak to the person again, ever. Make a decision and stick with it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, The wrong desires that come into your life aren't anything new and different. Many others have faced exactly the same problems before you, and no temptation is irresistible. God will show you how to escape. God says, I will never allow more on you than I have put in you to bear up under the temptation. God says, if you will follow me, I will show you how to get out. The person who says, I just couldn't help myself is lying if they're a Christian because we have God's Holy Spirit within us to resist. The problem is we focus on the temptation and we don't focus on God. And so we give in to the temptation. You can't stand at the edge of a cliff over and over again, run up to the edge of that cliff and stop just short of it every time and hope not to ever fall off. I mean, does that make... If you have a car... And, and you race up to the edge of a cliff and you slam on the brakes and you stop right at the edge of the cliff. Man, that may be exhilarating. Woohoo! That's what drunk people do, by the way. Just stupid stuff. Yeah, look at us. We stopped. And then they do it over and over again. Eventually, what happens? The fools go over and die. They remove themselves from the gene pool, which is probably a favor to society. We don't need that genetic... Stuff in the gene pool. Sorry. <laughs> you break all contact. No more explanations. No more lunches. Nothing. If you have to change jobs, men, women, because you're still with that person, you're still near that person, you change jobs. If you need to move, you move. Because you demonstrate to your spouse that yes, you, you messed up. God has a path to forgiveness. God has a path to restoration. I've seen it. When people will follow God, when the two become one, when the two pursue God, what happens if God is up here and and you're moving closer to God, you get closer to one another. So you pursue God with all your heart and God will restore you. And I I I could take you to churches today where I know that there was immorality, there was adultery. You could walk in and you would not be able to pick out the couples because God has so completely restored them that you would think that they'd been in love like that from first day until then. That's the power of God. That's why I say it's stupid not to have God in your life because God can restore you. Well, we talked about the negative. Let's move on to the positive. How do we make sure it doesn't happen? If we haven't crossed the line, what do we need to do to make sure it never happens, that we're not racing up to that line? Number one, commit to God's way. How can a young man, Psalm 119.9 says, How can a young man or woman, by the way, keep his way pure by living according to your word? In other words, you've got to be willing to have a standard. The problem is people want to pick and choose out of this book what they are going to follow and what they're going to discard. Christianity is not some buffet that you get to go and pick and choose. Well, I like this love thing, but that no sin thing, that's too restrictive. I don't want to follow that. And they rip pages out of the Bible. God says it's all or nothing. If you want to be under my authority, you make a decision that you're going to follow my authority. So you you commit to God's way. You have to stop and ask yourself, is there any circumstance 
under, under which or in which I would consider adultery. Because if there's any circumstance, Satan's going to make sure that you're in that circumstance. Because he wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your family. And he wants to destroy future generations because he's destroyed you. And because the way you act will determine how your children act. It's, it's just the way it is. So commit to God's way. Okay, well, what is God's way? We're told very clearly in the Song of Solomon, verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 6. Close your heart to every love but mine. Hold no one in your arms but me. God's standard is one man, one woman for eternity, for this lifetime. You are not, you're not out of that relationship until one of you dies. Number two, you become friends. So first you commit to God's way. Number two, you become friends. When you boil it all down, marriage is about friendship. And I read this book, uh, one of the books I read in preparation for this series is by Mark and Grace Driscoll. It's called um, Real Marriage. And, and in it, I read this quote, and I thought this was interesting, from a sociologist. It says, the determining factor in whether wives feel satisfied with sex, romance, and passion in their marriage is, by 70%, the quality of the couple's friendship. So, almost three out of four women say, the satisfaction of my relationship is determined by how close I feel I am a friend to my spouse, my husband. Now look what the guy said. For the men, the determining factor is, by 70%, the quality of the couple's friendship. So men and women come from the same planet after all. You feel close when you do things together, when you have a friend. You look around in this church. The couples that are closest to one another are the ones who are friends. They like doing stuff together. I absolutely love hanging out with my wife. If I have to make a choice whether to hang out with you or my wife, I'm always going to choose my wife. I mean, that just makes sense to me because of the possibilities. <laughs> but, but okay, in order to be friends, you have to spend time together. And when you spend time together, you're going to have conflict. And so you got to learn how to work through conflict. Now, we, my family was at uh, Disney World this last year. And, you know, they have hidden cameras everywhere. And Janie and I just ho- so happened to be in conflict and, and we were caught on camera working through our differences. Here, here's what it looked like. It's so embarrassing. I don't know how that happened. They just had, no, we knew exactly. We rode Space Mountain like 10 times and we figured it out. And, and if you ever see my family, we're the ones that do the weirdest things. We figure out where the cameras are and then we go running out there and we laugh and point. So, so we knew that's, look at the lady behind us. She's going, those are weird people. Not only does the quality of friendship affect every aspect of marriage, it's also a safeguard against emotional adultery that we talked about earlier. Emotional adultery is stage two. What is emotional adultery? It's having as your close friend someone of the opposite sex who is not your spouse. Emotional adultery is a step towards the real deal. It's wrong. So you do not have, and, and that's why, man, a lot of times when I'm counseling young couples, um, either, either before the marriage or, or after the marriage, a lot of times what the struggle is, well, my best friend is of the opposite sex. Well, guess what? That's no longer your best friend because you made a promise before God or you're about to make a promise before God. And so I'm sorry. <laughs> Guys, choose a dude for your best friend. Girls, choose a girl for your best friend. You know, that you're committing to that one person forever. 
Now, it's always wrong. Emotional adultery is always wrong. Okay, in this book, John and Ann, come up here, please. Kind of turn the lights up a little bit more, if you would, Jeff. In this book, I, I love this illustration Mark and Grace Driscoll came up with. All right, up here. Okay, they said there are basically three types of marriages. There is the back-to-back marriage. There is the shoulder-to-shoulder. And there is the face-to-face. Hey. (laughs) Not yet, not yet. We'll get there. Okay, so back-to-back. In a back-to-back marriage, these people live separate lives. Yeah, keep your hands to yourself there. (laughs) Help my illustration out here. Okay, these people live separate lives. They are not friends. They range from um, acquaintances to enemies. But these people in a back-to-back marriage are definitely not friends. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this. I haven't in years. But when Janie and I got, first got married, I knew it, that I had messed up if I got into bed and she would turn her back to me. <laughs> Ladies are laughing. Y'all know exactly right. I was like, ooh, I crossed the line and I don't know where it was. So i got to do some work before we can even go to sleep because she turned her back to me. Now, that hadn't happened in years because our communication is much better. But this, this is not the picture that God wants. Okay. Now, in a shoulder-to-shoulder marriage, this is the type of marriage, this type of relationship where the couple does things together. Maybe they have a business together. Maybe they work together. Maybe they, they work to keep the house and the yard nice. Maybe they, uh, the, the goal is raising uh, a good family. Maybe the goal is even to work together at church. And this isn't a bad thing at all, but God designed us for the face-to-face. Now, in the face-to-face, they also do, they also do the, the side-to-side. They rarely, if ever, do the back-to-back. But in a face-to-face marriage, there's an opportunity for communication, intimacy, respect, conversation, all those things we've been talking about the last few weeks, all those things that are in his needs, her needs, and, and for women only and for men only. Now, let me tell you this, too. John and Ann have started uh, dance lessons on Thursday nights. Jeff and Teresa are there. No, 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 no. Not yet. But let me tell you, one of the reasons I like dancing, I I take ballroom dancing. Now, right now, what's going on is country and western. That's the best I can do, so I'm doing country and western. But I take ballroom dancing because you get to hold the girl. And I'm not kidding. Years ago when we first started, a friend of ours who's, who's a minister, his wife, said, said to Janie, called one night, and Janie calls her back, and she says, where were And she goes, well, we were taking ballroom dancing. And she goes, ballroom dancing? How does that work? And Janie says, well, we go and we dance, and we're learning foxtrot and waltz. We're learning all these different things. And the, her friend sat there for a second and goes, how often do you do this? And Janie said, well, it's every week. And then we're trying to go to dances. You know, we, we go and have fun. She goes... I wish I could have seen her face because she goes, so you go and you dance for an hour. Do you just hurry home and have sex afterwards? (laughs) And my kids may not want to hear this, but the answer is yes. (laughs) Right? Okay, I won't ask you that. You don't have to answer in front. But let me tell you, here's the deal. Here's the deal. And and I, I, I say that because women 
Women tend to have face-to-face relationships. They have lots of friendships and they're face-to-face because they're based on communication. And the women know a lot about their friends because it's face-to-face. Men tend to have the shoulder-to-shoulder. You think about it, guys. The guys that you're closest to are the ones you play sports with, maybe you work with, maybe you go hunting with, but you know very little about the other person because it's a, it's a shoulder-to-shoulder. We're focused on a task. We're not focused on each other. Let's get this task done. And, and if somebody helps you get the task done, that's a friend of yours, right, guys? Okay, so here's the deal. Ladies, if you want to enter his world, do stuff with him. Sit down and watch a game. Go to a ball game. The sexiest thing in the world is when Janie wants to go to a baseball game with me or a football or ride my bike. She's riding today. We're riding bikes today. And it's just hot when my wife wants to ride a bike with me. Jeff's wife too. We won't even, no, we won't even go there. We won't even go there. Sorry. Distracted me. So ladies, if you want to enter his world, you've got to become friends with him. It's called recreational companionship and guys like this. Guys, you want to enter her world. Take dance lessons. Oh, um, you're going to have to begin communicating. Jesse and Jennifer got married yesterday and I, did, I totally didn't expect them to be here today. They're leaving on their honeymoon today and they wrote some of the coolest vows to each other. And uh, Jesse, Jeff, after the service, Jesse was reading his vows. He's standing right here and he's reading his vows and he got all choked up and he couldn't even look at Jennifer because he couldn't finish. And it was, and dude, he said, he said to her, you have completely captured my heart. And yes, every woman in the, in the worship center went, oh, and I said to him, I said, that was a good one. But see, here's the thing, okay? And this is what I told Jesse. I said, all right. Yeah, you, you've won the girl. But your job doesn't finish at the altar. Your job is just beginning. And so he's got to choose to enter Jennifer's world. John has to choose to enter Anne's world repeatedly in order to capture her heart again. If you don't provide a magnet at home, Satan is going to provide a magnet somewhere else to draw you away from the home. Thank you all. Y'all can be seated. And... and John and Ann will tell you that they're not any good at dancing. That's not true. Charlene, our dance instructor, came up to us Thursday night. She goes, they're really good. I, she said, I can't wait to work with them and help them out. And, and we have a blast. We, we're dancing with them. We laugh on Thursday nights. We have a good time. And, and we're looking for opportunities to dance. And, and if you come next Sunday night, we'll teach you a dance. We'll just stop one time and we'll teach you whatever dance. We'll teach you swing or whatever. We'll just have a little instruction time. If we have to, we'll even do a line dance. There'll be country music. There'll be, you know, there'll be all kinds of stuff. But, and, and if you want to do the, you know, the jive and dance, and we'll even do some of that. But I'm just going to tell you, it's much more fun to hold the girl. Okay. That's my last, at least today, that's my last one on that. So we've got to move toward one another. All right. Number three, what do you do? You maintain your marriage. There's a book in Mark and Grace Driscoll's, there's a chapter in their book called Friend... Singular, with benefits. I love this chapter. It was a great chapter. Not friends, not plural. Friend. Your spouse is a friend with benefits. Look what God's word says in 1 Corinthians 7, 5. And by the way, if you're using the U version, sometimes they don't have this. I've got like nine different versions of, of scripture on my, uh, on my computer. And, and I use the one that's, most, um, that's easiest to understand. So if it doesn't correlate, 
Exactly, we'll work on that in the week's head. So 1 Corinthians 7, 5, this is the Phillips translation. It says, Do not cheat each other of normal sexual intercourse or you will expose yourselves to the obvious temptation of the devil. In the Bible, sex is not just a physical responsibility, it's a spiritual responsibility that you have to your mate. There are many needs that you, can, that you have, that your spouse has, that can be met by others. But when you get married, when you stand before God, when you say, I'm committing to you, you're saying, you become the only realistic option for me sexually from now until I die. And the scripture says that, that there's a couple of things here. There's a couple of principles in, in 1 Corinthians 7 that you need to recognize. One is the principle of the immediate response. The other is the principle of a regular habit. I believe what, what Scripture is teaching is if your spouse says to you that they have a sexual need, it is your duty to fulfill that need. It's also your duty to be in the regular habit of fulfilling that need. Now, we've talked before that, that I don't think you drop everything. Guys can make plans, you know, even though we like, we're thinking of sex all the time. You can make dates and you can make plans. And, and guys, if you'll actually work ahead of time, she'll be ready. Don't crawl into bed at night and go, hey, baby, what you doing over there? That, that doesn't work with ladies. Now, ladies, ladies, feel free to use that line anytime. If you crawl into bed, your guy will say, I'm doing whatever you want me to do now. Okay, so that's, you can use it. Guys, don't use that. So maintain your marriage means that you are supposed to provide sexual fulfillment for your partner. Proverbs 5, 15 And 18 says, drink from your own well, my son, be faithful and true to your wife. Let her charms and breasts satisfy you. Let her love alone fill you with delight. The Jewish culture was extremely explicit when it came to sex. Let her breasts delight you. And you can't be delighted in your spouse if you're comparing your spouse to someone else. Do not compare to other spouses. Guys, don't look at someone else's wife and say, if I only had that. Or ladies, don't look at someone else's husband and go, oh, I wish my husband was like that. This is one of the reasons, comparison is one of the reasons that pornography is out for a Christian. There's no such thing as a 10 in real life. They airbrush everything nowadays. So quit comparing. Guys, if you will, this is, this is a tried and true formula for increasing your, your wife's attractiveness to you. Stop looking at other women. If you'll have eyes only for her, you starve your eyes only for her, she becomes the most beautiful woman on the planet because she becomes the only woman on the planet. And then you begin to treat her as the the treasure that she is, that God created her to be. And you say, if ever my wife or my husband is going to have a great lover, it's going to be me. And you commit yourself to becoming that person. Number four. Guard your mind. If we were to project on this screen up here every thought that you've had this last week or even in the last hour, you probably would not be very proud of it. In fact, you might be a little ashamed of some of those things. Sin always starts in the mind. And, and can, sometimes you can be at a worship service and the, and the most awful thought will pop up in your head and you're thinking, where did that come from? Well, it came from Satan because Satan's trying to distract you from the truth. And, and the temptation itself is not sin. It's what you do with the temptation that determines whether it's sin or not. So what you say is, I'm not going to meditate on that thought that just came into my mind. Look at 2 Timothy 2.22. Turn your back on lustful desires and give your positive attention to goodness, integrity, love, and peace in company with those who approach the Lord in sincerity. The key to overcoming temptation is not to resist it, but to replace it. We talked about that earlier. And, and how many of you remember what a record is, an LP record? 
All right. How many of you know what a CD or a DVD is? Now, the records, they used to have them where you could see them. You know, you put the little the needle on there and you play the record. And it's horrible, uh, the, the sound. But even your CDs and your DVDs, even your hard drive is a spinning disc. Now, think about this principle. You've heard the, the, the saying that an idle mind is the devil's pr- playground. If you think of an idle mind like a DVD or a disc sitting still, you can put all kinds of things on there and it will stay there, right? But if you begin to spin that, let's say you put salt on there, and you, if you begin to spin it, what happens to the salt? The centrifugal force causes it to leave. That's exactly what happens in your mind. When your mind is filled with the things of God, then you're not susceptible to the attacks of the enemy. It's when your mind is blank that Satan's going to put something in there. He's going to try to paint on that canvas. So you've got to take your thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. Number five, guard your heart. One of my favorite scenes in in the third Pirates of the Caribbean is when um, Will has become the captain of the Flying Dutchman. And if you've seen the, the trilogy, you know that the part of the deal was they cut out the heart of the, the captain and, and he's got it in a treasure chest. Watch what happens in this scene. belong to you. Will you keep it safe? Yes. Yes. You said on your wedding day that your heart belonged to her or your heart belonged to him. I've done a lot of your, your weddings, and I've heard you make those promises, all these forever words. What happened? You didn't guard your mind. You didn't guard your heart. And someone else begins to capture it. Number six, here's, here's how you practically do this. You set up boundaries. You recognize where affairs start. Most affairs start between couples who know each other well. A husband gets um, attracted to someone else's wife or vice versa. There may be um, relatives, you know, uh, distant relatives and their spouses you become attracted to. You got to be real careful not to send mixed messages to people of the opposite sex. There's appropriate behavior. There's inappropriate behavior with people of the opposite sex. And you need to be, uh, be aware that everywhere you go, there are sexual games, sexual innuendos going on, and you need to stay away from it. Ephesians 5.3 says, But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. A hint. That means don't be telling dirty jokes, don't do your, your double entendre stuff and, and laugh and giggle, at, because that's, that's not helping you in your marriage. This goes for dating, too. I heard about a young man who came to his pastor. This wasn't me, but he came to another pastor, and he said, he said, Pastor, when, when um, my date and I are regularly going too far, and, and the pastor said, well, what's going on? He said, well, it happens at the same time, at the same place every night, which to me, I'm going, okay, there's a red flag. Quit going to that place. And, you know, but here's what the pastor said. He said, well, tell me what's going on. He said, well, when we get home, we park in front of her house, and we start uh, kissing, and before we know it, we've gone too far. Pastor said, okay, here's what you do. Tomorrow or whenever you have your next date, when you get there, as soon as you get there, when you turn off, you reach over and grab her hand and you say, we're going to pray and we're going to ask God to save us from this immorality we're about to commit. And the young man went, I'm not going to do that. That would ruin everything. He didn't really want 
to not commit immorality, did he? He already had in his mind he wanted to do it. It would ruin everything. Well, you gotta, we got to choose to have boundaries in dating. you got to choose to have boundaries in marriage. And here's, you also have to have boundaries with friends. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Bad company corrupts good character or good morals. People who condone adultery, affairs, immorality, talk about lust, tell nasty jokes, encourage each other to do that, are not your friends. What they're trying to do is to destroy you. They don't realize it, but that's what they're doing. The Bible says to avoid them, not because you think you're better than them, but because you're not good enough. You cannot handle, I cannot handle a constant barrage of friends talking bad about their marriage, taking me places that that hinder my marriage, asking me to do things that are not healthy to my marriage. I can't handle it. And I'm willing to bet you can't either. So your most committed friends should be the ones who are most committed to their marriage, to their spouse. Number seven, magnify the consequences. You magnify the good consequences. If I do not commit adultery, then, then I do not curse my children. If I do not commit adultery, I have the opportunity to show them what a marriage should look like. I have the opportunity to set them up for success, to show them that this is the right way, that this is the wrong way. Those are the good things. But you also magnify the bad consequences. Look what the Bible says. Well, first, I didn't even put this one on there. It says, there's pleasure in sin for a season, but it does not last. The Bible's very realistic. Well, here's Proverbs 6.26. It says, adultery will cost a man all he has. Proverbs 6.32, the man who commits adultery is an utter fool, for he destroys his own soul. At stage one, way back at stage one, you need to say, will this be worth it? Because let me tell you some of the the destructive things that are going to happen to you. It's very short-sighted and it's temporary gratification. Here's some destructive things. Emotional damage to you, to your spouse, and to your children. Guilt, disillusionment, sexual relationships outside of marriage never last. Never last. Oh, well, mine's going to. No, it's not. Yours might last a day, a week, a month longer than the average, but it's going to end. I'll show you. Okay. It destroys marriages. Most remarriages start because of affairs. Spiritually, it breaks fellowship with God, brings judgment on your life. God is serious about this, and he takes a hard line when it comes to sexual sin. He says, every other sin you commit is outside your body, but sexual sin you commit against your body. And the consequences are more severe because of the damage it does, not only to you, but to your soul and to your future generations. So... Some of you say, well, I've committed adultery and nothing's happened. You've got to remember this. God doesn't settle his accounts in 30 days. You can be sure that, that if God says it, it will happen. And the only way, God doesn't wipe out consequences. He'll wipe out your sin, but he's still going to let you suffer the consequences. I know lots of guys in jail that, that they're very sorry for their sins and they've repented for their sins and they're still spending time in jail until their sentence is up. You have unwanted pregnancies. You have all kinds of stuff. God doesn't wipe those out. He doesn't wipe out the memory of it, but he wipes out your guilt. And he says it's possible to be restored. There's not physical virginity once you've given that up, but there is spiritual virginity. I I was a youth minister for 19 years, and there was lots of teenagers that wanted to know about that spiritual virginity. I'm going to tell you about it in just a second. But here's what I want you to know. Don't go for a marriage that's good enough. Go for a marriage that's great, that's over the top. If you have an affair with your spouse, there will not be a pull from someone outside. Bow your heads for just a moment.
I want you to think about what you've heard today. And I'm going to go through these seven choices, these seven things on how to affair-proof your marriage. And I want you to ask God which one should, should you latch on to. And I'm going to ask you to write that down on your registration card in just a minute. First thing was to commit to God's way. Second thing was to become friends with your spouse. Third was to maintain your marriage. And we were talking specifically about sex. Number four is to guard your mind. Number five is to guard your heart. Number six is to set up boundaries so that you make sure you're not in any situation. You're never close to the edge. Number seven, you magnify the consequences. You magnify the consequences of obeying God and you magnify the consequences of disobeying God. And I want you to take just a second and say, God, which one do I need to really pay attention to today? Father, would you change us from a nation, from a church of good enough to a nation and a church that glorifies you with our marriages, with our relationships. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.